Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Matt Brown, the CEO of Case, the leading investment platform that connects independent financial advisors with managers in alternative strategies. Matt was a guest on the show last year discussing his path and the business, and that conversation is replayed in the feed. Since that time, Case and the broader movement of private wealth into alternatives have accelerated rapidly. I caught up with Matt to get his perspective on the tidal wave of capital coming into the space ahead of Case's inaugural Alternative Investment Summit, a three-day event bringing together senior leaders from the alternative asset management and independent financial advisor communities on October 17th through 19th in Los Angeles. Our conversation covers the size of the private wealth market, 
key drivers of the adoption of alternatives, the characteristics of managers and products that receive flows, advice for those who would like to participate, and where that capital is flowing today. We then turn to Case's company strategy, including deploying a substantial capital raise, upgrading its technology, expanding the team, and building custom solutions for advisors. We close with Matt's views on the future of Case. Before we get going, this week, I'm going to let you in on a hot tip. Toma Bravo is coming on Private Equity Deals. Now, I'm letting you in on the secret even before I send out a tweet that goes viral. Heck, it's even before we even considered opening a TikTok account where this will become a global meme. Now that you're in on the news, all you have to do is hop on the phone and subscribe to our new podcast, Private Equity Deals. On Wednesday, you can hear about Toma Bravo's Take Private of RealPage. Thanks for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Matt Brown. Matt, great to see you. Ted, great to be here. From the last time you came on the show, there is so much buzz about money coming from this whole private wealth channel. I'd love to just start by having you level set. What's the scale of what we're seeing in terms of this movement into alts from private wealth? U.S. wealth management, the amount of money that financial advisors advise to today stands at around $40 trillion. So $40 trillion are advised or managed by financial advisors in America on behalf of their high net worth clients or their not just their high net, they're any clients. In 2030, that number is going to grow to about $60 trillion, which isn't necessarily a very large growth rate, but still an enormous number, which means that the U.S. wealth management market represents one of the largest collective pools of capital globally. What's interesting about it, though, when it, we look at it through the lens of alternative investments, their allocation rates to alternative investments of that $40 trillion is less than 5%, probably closer to 2 or 3% broadly on average. When you compare that average to what, say, institutional investors allocate to alternatives, pension funds, endowments, sovereign wealth funds, that's typically between 30 to 50% of their portfolios and alts. So really what we're seeing here is not only a growing wealth market overall, growing allocations to alternative investments, say from 3 to 5%, 10%, or 15%, which is causing really a massive reallocation of capital from traditional assets to alternative investments in the tune of up to 5 to $10 trillion over the next decade. So yeah, 1% shift at that size. You're talking $400 billion. I'd love to hear an update from the last time you were on the show of what you're seeing. So there's a concept here that there's a huge amount of money and a small share of it is going to come and it's massive. Is that actually happening on the ground? It's happening. It's happening. We're seeing it. I think since we've last connected about a year ago, so much has happened at Case. At the corporate level, we took in some fairly large private equity partners at the beginning of this year who brought us $340 million of growth capital to take advantage of this trend that everyone is seeing, which is that wealth management is truly allocating for the first time meaningful dollars to alternative investments broadly, private equity, hedge funds, private credit, venture, real estate. And again, Case is a platform that sits between financial advisors 
and alternative asset managers and enables that easy flow of capital or the connection between those communities. What we're seeing and what we measure are things such as conversion rates. How many new advisor firms are using the platform? Right now, it's on average twice per day, meaning that two new firms will make a first-time transaction on our platform. That's like a new customer coming into your store and buying something for the first time. That means we'll have over 500 to close to 700 new firms that control over a trillion dollars using our platform for the first time just this year, not even considering all the previous firms that use our platform. So we look at numbers like that. We're looking at total volumes. They're up 100% plus year over year. So everything is up double and triple digits. And that's, again, that's not in any way to brag about cases success. I'm just simply observing behavior on a platform the way Amazon observes behavior on their platform. Consumers are interested. In our case, financial advisors are very interested to move their clients' capital away from what has traditionally been a two-dimensional portfolio, fixed income and equity, into a three-dimensional portfolio, fixed income, equity, and alternative investments. So this concept of diversification beyond, say, 60-40 isn't new in the broad investment world. What's it been that's created this tipping point? Well, the stage has been set. Number one, you have to kind of think about the dynamic between the wealth management community and the institutional community. The institutional community has had access to alternative investments forever. The wealth management community, for structural reasons primarily, have not. So as a result of not having access Financial advisors haven't spent time to learn about them. And if you don't learn about alts and understand the strategies, they're very hard to implement in a client portfolio. But all of that is changing. And we've been at this for over a decade. And I can tell you, even three to five years ago, this is a whole new world that we're living in today. The amount of velocity and volume and interest is, at you say, at a tipping point. I'll give you some of the factors that are at work right now. Number one is... I think there's complete exhaustion in the 60-40 portfolio. It's not performing. It's not outperforming. It's not withstanding challenging markets. You're giving, if a financial advisor is a carpenter, a limited toolbox to build a house. They can't deliver. The most sophisticated investors utilize private equity and alternative strategies regularly. They can't. So I think the need and demand, the pent-up demand to incorporate alternatives is now at at an all-time high. But that alone isn't going to solve the problem. The real game changer has been technology. Firms like Case, we're not the only one, have truly created bridges that have allowed the community of financial advisors to interact, learn, transact with alternative asset managers and all different strategies. So that bridge that we've built using technology, making it easy, creating and investing in learning modules for all of these different products has really armed the advisor and made it easy for them to access. And that's causing this tidal wave of capital coming in. For these first-time advisors, you mentioned that education is an important part of getting them to come on the platform and to adopt alternatives for the first time. I'm kind of curious, like, what is that education? What is it that they need to learn and understand to get to the point where they're ready to write that first ticket? I'll tell you what type of education doesn't work. Sending a 120-page white paper to a financial (laughs) advisor and saying, dig in, call me with any questions. So content has been transformed on how it's been delivered. 
in every aspect. We, as consumers of content, expect our news to be personalized, customized. We expect it to be short, to the point. And there's no reason why when a financial advisor wants to understand what's going on in the world or what strategies make sense or what fund does, content shouldn't be delivered just like that to them. So we've spent a tremendous amount of time and money to build a state-of-the-art education platform that delivers content very similar to how we digest news. So if, Ted, you're on the platform and you're a financial advisor and you've checked your preferences on what type of things you're interested in or what type of products, we can deliver you information on the funds you're invested in or background information on the strategies. We can prepare you to for your next meeting with your client. What we're doing is arming you with the information you need to implement alts, understand them and speak to your client about them, but we're doing it in a way that's very common sense. We're not trying to replicate a 1.0 learning environment. Read the book, take the test. That's not going to work. What we're doing is it's a very modern approach of you probably have three minutes to get up to speed on something. Let us give you the most important points, facts, what you need to know, and then allow you to dig in deeper in your free time. So my hedge fund days, when the first movement to call it democratized hedge funds was this movement of liquid alts. And if you were in the industry, there was always this sense that most of what you were getting was a watered down version of what you could get as an institutional LP in the partnership. How have the products that the alternative firms are offering evolved in such a way that it's not just a watered down version because the capital is coming in? There's really two lanes here. Lane number one is asset management firms in the alternative space that are using their institutional products. So not changing product structure, they're delivering the same product and outcome that they are to institutions into wealth management. And that's been growing at a very rapid clip. There are enough investors in the wealth community that can meet the requirements to invest in some of these products. However, the main event, especially lately has been the rise of products designed for accredited investors and have structural differences around them to make it easier to invest in or scale across the uh, client book, lower minimums, for example, or maybe private equity and evergreen structures so there's no capital call issues. All of that, however, does have a small price to pay, most likely, but the price to pay is nowhere near the value that's being given in order to get access to these types of strategies. Secondly, the sophistication in the product innovation that these large asset management firms are working on, whether it's an Apollo or Franklin Templeton, a Hamilton Lane, Blackstone, of course, comes to mind and others, they're really designing very thoughtful, low-fee, low-expense product structures for the wealth management community. The real name of the game is treating wealth management like an institutional investor. As you're watching this volume of activity come in, I'm kind of curious to ask, who's getting it right on the manager side? Yeah, I'll give you the profile first, and then we can talk about a few names. And it's not just the obvious names who are getting it right. There is a bit of a playbook, and we've been observing and somewhat coaching managers on how to win in wealth. And I'll tell you a few things that have to happen. Number one is that there has to be this true voice at the top of an organization, the leadership of the organization, the CEOs, the CIOs that are coming out and saying wealth management, meaning bringing our capabilities, our investment capabilities into wealth is a priority. 
It's not an afterthought of our institutional marketing business or institutional business. So number one is there has to be a tone from the top. And you've seen that with a lot of the, especially publicly listed alternative investment firms where on their quarterly earnings calls are underscoring the fact that wealth is a top priority. And then two, it allows the firm to allocate resources dedicated to wealth management. Now, what are those, for example? Well, if you're going to be bringing in more investors and they're coming from a separate channel, you're going to need different operational considerations, technology considerations, investor relations and marketing considerations. You are going after a different channel, just as if you made the decision that you wanted to market your funds in Asia. It's a different market, a different place. It's not an afterthought of an institutional marketing program. And the third area is really product innovation. Building products that are designed for wealth management, whether that's structurally or from an accreditation or an investor accreditation level, is critical. You can't have a successful, scalable, alternative investment strategy delivered into wealth management unless your product speaks the language of wealth management. And there are uniquenesses to this channel that require different product structuring and innovation. But the firms that do all three leadership and voice from the top, investing in resources, and actually innovating on product structure are winning in wealth. And they stand to be the big winners for that five to $10 trillion of new capital coming into the market. They're going to establish themselves as the brand. On this point, if you're going to wind the clock back 30 or 40 years, when the mutual fund companies came running into wealth management, okay, there was hundreds and hundreds of firms that wanted to gobble up and be the preferred provider, build the brand and the trust. We only know the name of three right now. That means they're the ultimate winners. That's what's really happening right now. The Blackstones, the Apollos, the Aries, all these firms see the high stakes game of capturing that wealth and they're going to compete for it and be the brand. So as you've laid it out, each of those aspects, other than maybe the vision of the leadership, so the last two really require resources. You mentioned at the onset that it's not just the big guys that necessarily will win. So if you're not one of the big guys with, let's just call it unlimited resources to plow into the new distribution channel, the new product innovation, what have you seen of some of those other firms that are also getting significant flows from the channel? So what we're finding is that, and which is quite surprising because we use the names of these large asset managers so frequently that broadly across the United States and wealth management, no one really knows any of the names of the asset managers. So there really is no brand recognition, really even at the top. Now, they probably read about them in the Wall Street Journal a little more often, but at the end of the day, it's a pretty level playing field to establish trust and brand and become a preferred fund for these wealth management businesses. So what we always say is if you follow the playbook, like we talked about, you do have somewhat of a level playing field to be able to get into wealth, establish yourself and benefit. And we're seeing it again and again, even with smaller managers. We have one of the platform that Chicago-based credit fund, and they were very lesser known, known institutionally, but I would say they're one of the top brands right now in wealth management because they just got in the channel and established those relationships and committed to it. What is it that they did to build that brand? Yeah, commitment, like anything. This deep desire to win, understanding how big the opportunity and what the stakes are. When you have that much capital in play, there's going to be a lot of competition for it. And the firms that are willing to compete, willing to resource and willing to go after it, you will get your share. 
What have you seen? You mentioned product innovation and bringing lower fees to the channel. What does that look like in structure generically with for, for some of these different platforms? And maybe it's different across the different alternative asset categories. So we've seen a lot in the private REIT and BTC space. Those are investment structures that allow for accredited investors, meaning that below that qualified purchaser threshold, so a lower threshold. And whenever you can lower the investment or investor threshold, the pool of potential capital just continues to widen. We're also seeing, of course, interval funds, tender offer funds. All of these are structural wrappers around strategies that allow for more investors to participate and also to allow them to participate under terms and conditions that are just a little more friendly for wealth management, less rigid. So we've seen a lot of innovation in that area. The SEC is also gradually coming towards being a little more flexible on private fund allocation and registered fund allocation for alternatives. Initially, their stance over the last decade or two has been very clear, which is alternative investments are risky. So therefore, if you lose your money, we want you to be very wealthy to start off with. The problem with that is that they've kept the bar so high and private equity and other alternatives have done so well that they've realized that that has actually been excluding a broad population of investors that do want to generate wealth. We talk a lot about capturing money and alternative investment managers, but the ultimate beneficiary of all of this, Ted, is actually the end investor. Individuals that need to build wealth, you know, wealth is how you pay your bills and send your kids to school and safety for future generations. And if you can give more tools to the advisor or to the individual to be able to do that, that rising tide benefits everybody. In today's markets, as you're observing these flows coming in, where are you seeing the money going to based on strategy? It's been a fascinating six months, to say the least. So we've had global uncertainty. You know, of course, we've had Russia invade Ukraine. We've had the uh, corresponding energy crisis in Europe. We've seen U.S. inflation. We've seen ongoing political instability of a very divided world. We've seen higher taxes. So the areas where we've seen the flows, and again, as a platform, we don't advise on where money goes. We just are the platform and we observe where money goes. So I think in response to kind of global uncertainty, you're seeing investors move towards macro strategies, firms that have great track records in trading macro, either discretionary or uh, quantitative. That's been a big area. As it relates to kind of concerns around taxes, we've seen capital flow into qualified opportunity zones and other tax advantaged strategies. And there's a lot of real estate firms that have done just a spectacular job building and investing in qualified opportunity zones. As it relates to inflation, we've seen a big migration to more hard asset type strategies, real estate being one of them, commodities being another one. And then of course, just general volatility the predictable income from private credit and low volatility in that market has collected a lot of dollars. When the markets are unstable and there's something very attractive about that private credit market, anything LIBOR plus floating is actually a spot where dollars are going. In addition to macro that you mentioned, we haven't touched much on hedge funds. I know that's one of the categories of alternatives on the platform. What have you seen over the last couple of years and then more recently of flows into hedge fund strategies? Hedge fund strategies have been a little bit of a tale of two cities. There's been some that have done extremely well. These multi-strategy funds that like a Millennium or a Citadel, the ones that have um, really diversified risk, low volatility, really where it's almost a fixed income replacement in a portfolio. You see, from our lens, we're looking at wealth management. If you exclude the very sophisticated wealth management firms that know alts well, 
many allocations to alts right now are first-time advisors putting money to work in alternatives. So as you're observing these flows come in, I'm curious if there's anything that's been surprising to you. I think the most surprising observation on the platform, because largely we're a data company as well, so we see everything, we measure everything. I mentioned our learning platform. It's a highly engaged tool for the financial advisor to learn about strategies. And when we see high engagements in content, it most likely means assets will follow into those strategies. So as an example, opportunity zones or private credit were highly engaged pieces of educational content. And from that, dollars went into those strategies. I think what's actually quite surprising is the story about crypto and blockchain. It doesn't seem like you can read a newspaper or attend a conference without that being a main event topic. However, on our platform, it is a highly engaged, if not the most engaged educational content on our platform, but there's no correlation to the follow-through of capital into those strategies. So that's telling us at least that we're in the very early stages of confidence building from the advisor or investor community into crypto or blockchain. So people want to learn about it. It's fascinating. It's unknown. It could be transformational or not, but they're not yet valuing it as a portfolio allocation in scale. There tends to be more betting or kind of, let me see what happens here. Now, there are some firms on the blockchain infrastructure side that are approaching it like private equity businesses that we do find to be that 2.0 generation of how to get access to the space. We do think that's quite interesting. But for now, straight up crypto investing, not so interesting. But Ted, speaking about blockchain, what is very interesting about blockchain itself is the use cases for platforms and the finance industry at large. Many firms are exploring uses of blockchain, whether that be the infrastructure and the distributed ledger technology. Very interesting. We are also doing and taking a look at that. We're also seeing firms, and most recently KKR just announced this, Apollo also announced one, Hamilton Lane as well. They are tokenizing interests of their funds and putting them on the blockchain. That is a real 3.0 of where the world's going. If you can buy a digitized version of a private equity fund, that starts to begin to think about, okay, very low investment minimums, very low friction, liquidity for an illiquid fund. So there's been a lot of exploration and that continues to pick up pace at a very rapid clip. Does that also at the same time create thoughts for you of a competitive threat to the platform as a whole? No, I think that as long as you are not caught flat-footed, we'll position ourselves to be in that business some way, shape, or form. So as a platform, again, you're a neutral platform. So could we become a tokenization exchange? Sure. I also don't think that the world's going to shift completely overnight. Will private funds be purchased with tokens? Potentially. How much? I don't know. We're just trying to get financial advisors to make their first alternative investment in private equity. I'm not sure how likely it is their first investment is going to be in a token on the blockchain. So if there's demand for tokens in the future and a tokenized versions of alternative investments, we'll have a role on that. But now I think we feel pretty comfortable what our, our position is in the market. So if I'm speaking to a manager who is feeling like they want to tackle this channel and maybe has the resources to do it, how do they go from that to engaging with you and your team to be a featured manager on the case platform. The key for the case platform 
is really held in two areas on the marketplace side. Again, different from the solution side where we can accommodate others' ideas, but on our marketplace that's made available to everybody, there just has to be obvious demand for the strategy. And the fund itself has to go through independent due diligence from Mercer and pass that. So if we believe that there's strong demand for the strategy or the asset manager, and we constantly are engaging the thousands and thousands of financial advisors that use our platform on what strategies they're interested in, what strategies could they be interested, what trends are they seeing. So not too dissimilar to how if you know you and I were in charge of stocking the shelves at Whole Foods, like we would have indicators and market information to guide us on what products to put on the platform or the shelves, we do the exact same thing. So we're always trying to work with the community of investors, advisors, and think about how we're going to actually get the menu of offerings in line with how they see things. So commercial demand meets due diligence requirements. That creates our marketplace. I want to shift a little bit to Case's business. You've raised a bunch of money. Apollo, Motive, Hamilton Lane, Eldridge was an early investor, some real hitters <laughs> alongside you. And I'm really curious how you're thinking about spending that money to drive value for the business. First of all, it's a real honor to have some of the smartest investors in the world recognize what you're building. I always say that nothing great is built alone. I've been fortunate to have just amazing partners along this journey, and it's been a huge team effort. The recognition of firms like you mentioned coming in and taking an equity stake in the business is one, recognition of the firm we've built, but also two, the opportunity set that's out there right now. It's, I think, a glaring moment that everyone can see that the world is changing, that more and more capital is going to be coming into alternative investments from wealth management, and the world needs platforms like Case to make it happen. It's a bit transformational, like Uber kind of transformed how we think about getting into transportation, Airbnb, and how you think about renting an apartment. Case and other technology platforms are transforming how we invest. And it's not just Case and alternatives, but we have other platforms out there that are doing it for stocks and so forth. So we're really in that fintech moment. And that capital and those investors have been excellent. In terms of how we're going to deploy the capital, there's really two areas, but the the guiding light that we always think is keep the client, which in our case, we have two because we're a two-sided platform, the financial advisor and the asset manager, keep them in the center of the page and make sure you're constantly improving the user experience for both. So every aspect of how an advisor uses our platform from the moment they log in to the first thing they see that's customized and personalized for them, their journey through the platform and how they're learning about funds and discovering funds and products, to executing and making it easy, to when they come back in after they bought the fund, they understand exactly where it is, how they can look at the performance and make sure that information is organized in a way they actually understand and is useful for their back office. So a real turnkey approach. For the asset manager, we need to do something a little bit different. We need to be able to get them awareness to this huge and growing community of advisors. So helping them tell their story on our platform, getting engagement from the advisor community directly to them, having them do some self-serving on our platform. So for example, uploading information and content that's timely, giving them the tools to reach out. So we're really kind of bringing these two communities together in a way that's never happened before. That's quite exciting. We've also used the capital to open up what we're calling our solutions business. Many firms out there on the advisory side or even the institutional side, I would say, they don't necessarily need a marketplace to find a fund. They actually have relationships or they take pride in seeking them out themselves. 
But our technology has gotten to the point where we can actually take our chassis and deliver it to them for all of the funds and products that they've found and sourced themselves and really use our technology as a SaaS. And that's extremely of interest by the community because we've realized that, yes, many firms buy, seek out and execute funds on our platform, but they've also historically had their own relationships with asset managers and a need a centralized location to have all those products and to have a place that they can continually execute in an easy way. So building out that marketplace to be robust for both sides of the journey, while also breaking it apart into modular pieces where someone can come to the platform and say, I just want one, two, and five. I don't need the whole thing. If one of those two financial advisors that's looking at your platform for the first time comes and has already does have their own independent alternative manager to private equity, hedge fund, doesn't matter. I'm envisioning a situation where they're kind of in between, hey, I want to be on your platform to pick the options in your marketplace. But I also like that solutions thing because I don't know how to digest these statements. How do you service that, which is probably a more common financial advisor than the person I've never heard of an alternative before? It is one of the most common requests that we get. It's, hey, I want to have access to your marketplace. I want to have access to the funds, but I also have these eight that I've invested in. So what we do is we onboard those eight and then their view when they log into our platform will be a customized view just for them. So it'll be our marketplace funds plus their eight. Now, interestingly, their eight more and more are already on our platform. So that's an obvious, but Yes, we deliver now customized user experience for the advisor. So when you take those two visions, really, the user experience and the solutions business, and think about that allocation of capital, there's always buy versus build. And as you're looking at these two landscapes, how are you thinking about deploying hiring and deploying resources or, hey, there's a part of this user experience in some smaller fintech company and we're going to buy them and integrate them into case? We have a pretty clear vision on where we're going. And the problem is with acquisitions, because everyone's doing this for the first time, this is a new disruptive business. We're not copying another playbook. We're actually writing the playbook. There just aren't that many companies out there to acquire. You can, yes, you can get scale in different ways through acquisition, but the technology that we have, we're building it internally. To find someone else that's coincidentally built something that we want, it's just a little harder. So we have a great technology team. It's grown by over 100 people, engineers, product design, et cetera, over the last eight months, 12 months. Our team is now on pace for hiring a person a day on average. It's a lot of onboarding of new people. So the team is really the strength of the team is really showing and we're finding that organic growth, developing internally, maintaining culture is working. All of that being said, however, there are moments to leapfrog. We have a team that's dedicated to looking at that. It's not just the obvious acquisition, but there are other ways to be able to do that. But we are looking at acquisitions. We are looking at different aspects of growth that we can not build ourselves, but it's just a little more complicated when you're building something so unique and so new. When you're scaling a team in this day and age, this day and age meaning, is it hybrid work? Is it in office? How have you thought about integrating and inculcating the culture that you built at Case to all these new people coming in? It has to be the number one thing on all of our, our the leadership team's list. If you don't get the people piece right, 
really you have nothing. We are, you know, our biggest asset as a company is of course our team and our people. We think about the types of people we want to bring into the firm. Our interview process is very selective. We try to keep case kind of on the edge of feeling like a startup, but yet having the strength of a more developed company. A lot of the people we're hiring are coming from some of the biggest firms on Wall Street and also technology because they want a more entrepreneurial environment. We haven't struggled too much on the work from home versus come in. We haven't gone to a hard line in the sand. We've given guidance. And the way we decided to do it was give flexibility to team leaders to be able to dictate how often they want their teams in office and when. But again, we have offices now in New York, LA, Austin, London. So even if everyone's in the office, they're not all together anyway. (laughs) So you end up shifting with different times now in a post-COVID world, bringing the firm together and maybe offsite formats is much more important than maybe it used to be when you could get that kind of water cooler moment, which we don't get as much anymore. But taking care of the team, building the team, encouraging the team. I meet every new employee. I meet them in groups as they come in in somewhat cohorts and we have conversations, groups of 10, groups of 12. And I always say the same thing, which is this is a two-way street. You've chosen to give your time to case. And these are very valuable years of your career. And we don't hire people that don't have options. You've all had options. So that means you've selected to come to case. And your commitment to us is to work hard, show up every day, leave your fingerprints on this company, be a good teammate to the rest of the firm. And our commitment though, and my commitment to them is I need to give you a platform to grow, to learn, to rise. And if we have that ongoing commitment to each other, the culture of the firm will continue to flourish. And it's, so far, it's been great. And people are excited to come to work and be part of this, this new adventure. When you think about these platform businesses, some of the ones you mentioned, even an Uber and Airbnb, a lot of them end up being winner take all. Or maybe there's one or two. How do you think about your competitors in this landscape today? The barriers of entry right now to be a competitor are quite high. And it's not to say that we don't have competition. I view competition in any disrupting and technology or environment, you need multiple evangelists in the beginning to turn the tide. So we actually welcome anyone who wants to kind of throw their hat in the ring right now and contribute to the democratization of alternative investments because it's all positive for us. If they want to spend their time, effort, and energy saying the same messages, if they want to be in the channel and educate, if they want to talk to the asset managers and convince them why the channel makes sense, whatever aspect of the business they want to play in, we welcome it and we want them. There will come a time, however, where there is consolidation. But again, we're in the early innings. I think more right now is better. And we need as many players as possible telling the story of change. How do you think about case picket time, five years out, 10 years out, It's clear what you're trying to capture as you've laid it out, as all this money is flowing through this channel. There's so many different options you can imagine with a growing business like this. I'm kind of curious what your vision is for the long term. We try to stay medium term. The long term will take care of itself if you deliver. I think the long term, there's a dozen different ways it could go. But delivering on the promise of today which is to build the single best platform and marketplace for alternative investments and financial advisors, we are still in the early innings. I joked with my partners the other day that I think we're still probably in the dugout. (laughs) We haven't even got to the game yet. I mean, there's so much room to grow and just delivering on the promise that we've all identified and the opportunity that we've identified. If we do that, opportunity just keeps showing itself to us. Could we be 
in different asset classes on this platform, potentially? Could we be internationally positioned, potentially? Could we go public as a business, potentially? Could you be part of a much larger organization, potentially? But all those are just potentialities right now. We've been given a lot of money by our private equity partners, $340 million in equity. They have expectations, and we're going to deliver. And that means one foot in front of the next and drive client adoption, get the best asset managers on the platform, drive revenue, and just maintain our leadership position in the market. Matt, I know you were on recently enough that I haven't really changed around my closing questions, but there's always a few in the hopper. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions before I let you go. So the first is, what type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to the flame? Well, investment's an interesting way of describing it. And this might not be a perfect answer, but what really fires me up are the people that have joined Case. And I do view them as a, our most important investment. That's an investment in someone. It's an investment that they've made in Case. How we perform as a business impacts them, impacts their families. We take this very seriously, delivering a great career path. So the number one investment that I spend time on, seek out and get the most enjoyment from our team and the people who have made the decision to join Case. As a leader of this business, what do you think your biggest blind spots are? Well, this is a fast-moving market. Whenever you have this much capital in play, whenever the trends are this obvious, whenever you have such big players circling around, we're really at the convergence of the explosion within wealth management, the rise of alternatives, the rise of technology. These are huge trends. In terms of blind spots, what I get concerned about is that we're not seeing where competition or competitive forces could come from. I don't mean the obvious competitor. I mean, what's the area that we're not thinking about that could present pressure on the business or competition? So we're constantly spending time with our partners and our vendors and our clients. And we ask questions like, what are you seeing out there? Really trying to get different perspectives. You mentioned tokenization could be a competitive threat. It is a competitive threat. It could also be a great opportunity. It's just how you approach it. So we're not ignoring it. We're embracing it. We're spending time and resources on it. So if the tide does turn, we're ready for it. This is a land grab, but it's not only a land grab, the land is changing at the same time. So we have to be ready and the company has to be nimble enough to be able to react to these. All right, Matt, I have one more for you. There's this great line that everyone's genius lies adjacent to their own eccentricity. And I'd love you to describe what do you think your personal genius is and what is that related adjacent eccentricity? Look, I think running a finance and technology company and being kind of driven by the right side of your brain, which is the more creative side, has pluses and minuses. So I think in pictures, I think in themes, I think longer term. And I think that's been a big benefit. And I would also say just mastering the ability to communicate, build trust has been a big strength. So not approaching this from a traditional perspective, as I think I talked on your first show, I, I called myself the accidental financial advisor. And that's because I really didn't know what I was interviewing for, but I did get the job. And that kind of set off my career path. But that's really served me well. And what does that come alongside that creates challenges? There can be a little dreamer in all of us, uh, or especially in me, uh, <laughs> especially where we are right now in the business. You know, when you're younger in your corporate cycle, there's a lot more options and you can have bigger dreams and chase a few. I think right now we do know the dream and we just have to be much more disciplined. And I try not to walk into my executive team with a brand new idea too often, but when it's important, <laughs> I do. Great. Matt, thanks so much for sharing that really interesting update on case. Thanks, Ted. 
Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. 